Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Everything you want is on the other side of fear. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 69. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be one of those episodes. Atomic Blonde. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to Verbal Diorama yet again. If you are a regular listener, uh, thank you for being here if you are a brand new listener. Um, And I hope you're all continuing to be healthy and happy and and most importantly, free from COVID. Uh, It might be cold outside. Well, this is the UK. It normally is. But Verbal Diorama is a warm and happy place. Well, except for the last episode, which was a bit sad. Uh, and, And truthfully, I was a little worried about the reception that I would get for Black Panther. But I needn't have been because... You guys, you wonderful, wonderful listeners, you came through in droves. I got so many positive comments. And this isn't even hyperbole. The most comments post-episode release, uh, definitely the most comments within an episode so far, ever. Um, And, I mean, clearly, you guys love Black Panther. Uh, We all love Black Panther. Um, And we love Black Panther for a really good reason. Um, I mean, there are many good reasons to love Black Panther. Um... And I just wanted to say I am and remain so proud of that episode. And that's despite the fact that I got very emotional at the end. I felt quite strongly about releasing it as it was, uh, despite the fact that I was worried about doing so. Um, Mainly because I kind of feel like we should treat all emotions as valid. Uh, We shouldn't just filter out sadness uh, when we feel sad. I feel like society tells us that we should. Uh, that we shouldn't be sad in public. Um, And I kind of feel like your emotions are valid, whether it's joy. And I use joy a lot on this podcast. That's kind of the point. Or sadness. And it's, again, it's something that Inside Out deals with very well. Uh, Inside Out will be coming to this podcast at some point in the future. And I think it kind of resonated with so many people because my sadness was and is still shared with so many 
wherever in the ancestral plane Chadwick Boseman is, I hope he knows how much we all love him and miss him. Uh, and, and really, I guess I wanted to say, you know, just a massive thanks to all of you guys who listen to Black Panther for, uh, well, not making fun of me and uh, for not giving me the one star reviews with She Cried. Although there's still time for that, I suppose. But uh, I want to move on because I want to talk about Atomic Blonde, because that's why we're here. This is episode 69, 69, dudes. Um, and this is Atomic Blonde. It should have been Bill and Ted, shouldn't it, really? If I'd have put any thought into it, it should have been Bill and Ted. Uh, never mind. Uh, it's too late now. <laughs> Atomic Blonde is not Bill and Ted. And also Atomic Blonde is pretty much the polar opposite to Black Panther in, in every way. Uh, I mean, you know, Atomic Blonde is filled with booze, swears, Naked ice baths, vodka, neon, 1989 Berlin, uh, and set during the Cold War. Um, and did I mention the swears? Uh, Black Panther, by the way, had none of those things. Um, but it's interesting because I really struggled to find a trailer without any swears. <laughs> and uh, I have always been quite a clean language podcast. Um, and so the trailer that I found, it does contain a mild swear. Um, but it's very mild, so I'll let it pass this once. Um, but, I mean, the language in this film is just atrocious. This is not a film for children, ladies and gentlemen. But anyway, here's the trailer for Atomic Blonde, which is banging soundtrack, by the way. Oh my God, I love it. I chose this life. And someday, it's going to get me killed. Not today. Lorraine Broughton, expert in intelligence collection and hand to hand combat. Agent Gascoigne was killed last night. Did you know him? Enough to say hello. He had an atomic bomb of information. Find out who's hunting our operatives and trust no one. Person. Your content. Welcome to Berlin. I'm David. Don't shoot. I've, I've got your shoe. That was me from the moment my feet touched the ground. This was never part of the plan. It was part of mine. I've lost the target. What do you know about this woman who's been following me? You look like you need saving. Ready for action? Three times. 
I think I love you. That's too bad. It's November 1989. Communism is collapsing and soon the Berlin Wall will come down with it. Two weeks ago, an undercover MI6 officer was killed in Berlin. He was carrying information from a source in the East, a list that allegedly contains the name of every espionage agent working in Berlin on all sides. No list was found on his body. Now Lorraine Broughton, the crown jewel of Her Majesty's Secret Intelligence Service and an experienced spy with no pre-existing ties to Berlin, has been sent into this powder keg of social unrest, counter-espionage, defections gone bad and secret assassinations to bring back the list and save the lives of the British agents whose identities reside on it. So, let's talk about the cast quickly of this movie. We have Charlize Theron as Lorraine Broughton, James McAvoy as David Percival, John Goodman as Emmett Kurtzfeld, Till Schweiger as the watchmaker, Eddie Marson as Spyglass, Sophia Bittella as Delphine LaSalle, Roland Muller as Alexander Bremovich, Toby Jones as Eric Gray, and a more of a cameo really from Bill Skarsgård as Merkel. Uh, also fight choreography stuntman Sam Hargreave also makes a brief appearance as MI6 agent James Gascoigne. So Atomic Blonde was written by Kurt Johnstad. It's based on the graphic novel The Coldest City by Anthony Johnston and it was directed by David Leach. And it's hard to remember, actually, that 1989 was only 31 years ago because it feels simultaneously so much longer than that and also so much shorter than that uh, <laughs> because my sister was born in 1989. So, but prior to November 1989, Berlin was split into West Berlin and East Berlin, uh, separated by a wall which split Europe to the West and the Soviet Union to the East. The Eastern Bloc was a communist state consisting of the USSR, East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria. And the period from 1947 to 1991 is generally referred to as the Cold War, where tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States were at their highest post the Second World War. The US at the time allied with the Western Bloc countries of the UK, Norway, Greece, Iceland, France, Spain, Italy, Turkey, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg and West Germany. Countries like Ireland, Sweden, Austria, Finland and Switzerland remained neutral and Yugoslavia and Albania had been under Soviet control but had since become non-aligned. By 1989, the Soviet alliance was crumbling and the Eastern Bloc countries' protests were becoming more vocal. Communist leaders became unseated country by country, with elections taking place in Poland and Hungary, and uprisings had taken down regimes in Bulgaria and Romania. Czechoslovakia, which would eventually peacefully dissolve into two independent countries, Czech Republic and Slovakia, restored democracy with the Velvet Revolution. The fall of the Berlin Wall was the most visible demolition of the communism between East and West, and this is the backdrop of Atomic Blonde. But the tensions between the East and the West... It's kind of important to know for the story, as this is a three-way, really. <laughs> this is episode 69, and I'm talking about three ways. But anyway, uh, so between the Soviets, uh, the UK, and the USA. Atomic Blonde, as I said, is based on the graphic novel The Coldest City, which was written by Anthony Johnston and illustrated by Sam Hart. Johnston grew up during the Cold War, and when the Berlin Wall fell, it felt to him like the world had literally changed overnight. 
He wanted to write a story set during the Cold War, which was in real life packed with spies and espionage on all sides. Literally, the whole world was crumbling down around Berlin at the time, and so it felt like the perfect setting for a noir spy thriller. Originally written as a John le Carré-style graphic novel, before it was published in 2012, it was pitched out as a movie and picked up by Denver and Delilah Productions, which is founded by Charlize Theron. Interestingly, Denver and Delilah uh, are her dogs. Denver and Delilah also produced Theron's Oscar-winning turn as serial killer Aileen Warnos in 2003's Monster, uh, which was directed by Patty Jenkins. Uh, the same year that Atomic Blonde came out, uh, Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman was also in cinemas. So that's quite a nice little correlation there. So Charlize Theron, who had just come off the, the strong box office reputation of Mad Max Fury Road and its six Oscars, was given a pre-release copy of The Coldest City. And basically Denver and Delilah bought it on the strength of the script and the concept. Uh, at that time, as I said, the the graphic novel itself wasn't published. Uh, but when Anthony Johnston did visit the set, which he did do, uh, he even distributed signed copies of the graphic novel to Charlize Theron and to others on the set. So the movie adaptation uh, of The Coldest City was renamed Atomic Blonde. And it was always envisaged as based on the graphic novel, but David Leach wanted it to saturate it with colour to kind of contrast the dark aspects of the setting and the plot and Johnston gave the project his blessing. And he basically said that he believed that adaptations have to fit the medium by which you're adapting. And while a black and white graphic novel worked in his format, it wouldn't necessarily translate from page to screen in the same way. The movie was always supposed to be a reinvention of the spy genre, something that, let's be honest, had been primarily dominated in the past by male spies, as well as being very stuffy and dark and gritty. And Atomic Blonde would literally be none of those things. And that was something that they wanted to do straight off the bat. It's also very highly likely that uh, John Wick... <laughs> going to talk a lot about Keanu in this episode, guys. Uh, so John Wick has a very similarly styled level of violence. And also very neon colour schemes. And it's something that I love about John Wick. And it's very highly likely that this was also inspiration for Atomic Blonde. Um, I actually talked about John Wick, all three John Wick movies, uh, back in episode 42 of this podcast. So I had some special guests, Derek and Laurel from The Midnight Myth, who were amazing, by the way. Um, and we talked a little about the visuals that John Wick deploys um, and just how much we all absolutely love the visuals in John Wick. And Atomic Blonde is very similar to John Wick in many ways. But the visuals aren't the only link to John Wick either. Um, and... As I said, there are obligatory Keanu references ahoy in this episode um, because David Leach uh, was the uncredited co-director of John Wick, so the first John Wick, uh, and the director of all three John Wick movies, uh, Chad Stahelski, would not only be part of the production team on Atomic Blonde as part of 8711 Productions, but he's also involved with the next episode of this podcast, coincidentally, uh, and also the one after the one after that, too. Uh, so there's a lot of Chad Stahelski going on in verbal diorama, just generally. Um, David Leach would actually leave John Wick 2 to be involved with Atomic Blonde. Uh, originally, Chad Stahelski was to co-direct Atomic Blonde with David Leach, and obviously he decided to carry on instead with John Wick 2. And obviously, as I said, it was based on a graphic novel called The Coldest City. Uh, and when you think of The Coldest City, you don't immediately think of funky 80s music and 
bright neon colours and Charlize Theron taking naked ice baths. Oh, maybe you do, actually, because coldest. Uh, But anyway, the coldest city, uh, like I said, was renamed to the snappier, sexier sounding atomic blonde. And with the potential threat of atomic war and with it, the threat of atomic bombs uh, that was so prescient during the Cold War era. And obviously the fact that Charlize Theron is mostly blonde, although she does also don brunette and redhead wigs during the movie. The humour in the movie kind of sort of aligns it more towards a punnier sounding name. And I mean, as well as the fact it's it's Charlize Theron and she's gorgeous. <laughs> Don't be. <laughs> she just is. She's one of the most gorgeous women in the world. Um, and let's be honest. Don't be under any illusions. This, this movie doesn't know the audience it's playing for uh, because it does. Um, but the name is an interesting choice, especially considering the the more kind of cute connotations, associations with uh, with blondes. Uh, I actually talked a little about that in Legally Blonde, which is episode 21 of this podcast, um, which plays up to those blonde stereotypes. And and like Atomic Blonde, actually, in many ways, it smashes them to pieces because this particular blonde is not going to be taking any of your poo, <laughs> to be frank. Um, she's just not. She is a badass. And I'll be completely honest. I love this movie. I completely adore it. I could not wait to talk about Atomic Blonde on the podcast. I can't believe it's taken me so long, actually. Um, I I love this movie. um, And that's despite its flaws. um, And it does have them. It's not a perfect movie. There is no such thing as a perfect movie. Unless we were talking about Bill and Ted, in which case it would be. Um, The plot is a little thin. um, And the ending... um, I'll I'll go into the ending a little bit more uh, at the end of the episode, but a lot of viewers kind of complained a little bit about the ending because they found it confusing. Um, But if you've listened to this podcast before, and obviously if you haven't and you're a first-time listener, uh, hello. Um, But one of the things that I love cinematically is fight choreography. Uh, I mentioned it a lot in John Wick, how much I love the fight choreography in John Wick. Um, And I similarly love it here. Uh, And there's some really great standout fight scenes that I I just want to talk about because I love them so much. So the movie was filmed on location in Budapest and Berlin. And it was really important for the filmmakers to get that authentic European feel, as well as a period 80s setting. Um, and, And also for the violence specifically, as in John Wick as well, to make it feel very visceral. Um, that Lorraine can give as good as she takes and boy does she give and boy does she take. Um, I mean, the beatings, every time she gets hit, you feel it. Uh, very similar to John Wick. Um, but also the fact that David Leach had an idea and he wanted to do this action-driven one-shot sequence and he had this idea for about a decade But his vision would actually come to reality with Atomic Blonde. They have a 10-minute stairway sequence, um, which would be framed like the street scene in Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men, which is coming to this podcast early next year. I swear, it's definitely coming. I can't wait to talk about Children of Men. Um, So the scene in Children of Men isn't actually a one-take. It's very cleverly stitched together to look like it. Um, And a similar action scene would also be featured in Atomic Blonde, as I said, in the stairway, as well as a fight scene staged at Gascoigne's apartment and also a wonderfully brilliant car chase scene. And I want to talk about all of them, basically. And I will 
preface this by saying that it helps, of course, that Charlize Theron is a trained dancer. I've mentioned on this podcast before that fight choreography for the movies is never like real fighting. I don't know stage combat at all. I've never done it. But I trained as a kickboxer for a few years. So I know how to kick. and I know how to punch. And I know how it feels when you get kicked and when you get punched. And it's just not the same. Fight choreography in the movies is staged more like a dance. So having a dance background really helps not only with the angles. Uh, this is obviously something as well I talked about in The Princess Bride with the sword fight. Um, it helps with things like camera angles. Um, obviously, Charlize Theron also trained in martial arts. Um, and we're going to come to that specifically a bit later. Uh, she had eight personal trainers who, in her words, made her puke every single day. She suffered cracked teeth from clenching too much, which resulted in root canal surgery before filming in Budapest. Uh, as well as suffering from bruised ribs. Charlize Theron did an astonishing amount of her own stunts and fight scenes. She did have a stunt double by the name of Monique Ganderton, uh, but she was only really used for the very intense stair falls um, or, and I quote, cabinet smashes. <laughs> because who wants to be smashed into a cabinet? Um but ultimately, David Leach had this vision for what he wanted to do, and he's asked Charlize Theron what do you think about this? And she was just completely on board with everything. She was just completely game for it all. And she is just so phenomenal in this movie. This is obviously an ensemble cast, but this is Charlize Theron's movie. She looks fantastic. Of course, she's Charlize Theron. Of course she does. She's dressed amazingly. She takes ice baths because of all of the pain that she's in. Uh, she drinks a lot of Stolly vodka. There's a lot of vodka and, and specifically Jack Daniels product placement in this movie, as well as lots of Dior. Uh, which Charlize Theron, you'll have seen her on the perfume adverts. She is a brand ambassador for Dior. Um, but massive props to the costuming department because and the makeup department as well, for that matter. Uh, I'm pretty certain that most of those bruises that she has aren't real. I mean, she is dressed impeccably in this movie. She looks stunning, literally in every single scene. Uh, she, I mean, I feel like my love for Charlize isn't that well known on this podcast. And that's because I've only featured her once. Uh, so I featured her originally back in Cuba and the Two Strings, which she's also great in, by the way. Looking at my big list, because I thought to myself, what other Charlize Theron movies do I have on my list? I've got loads. I don't know why it's taken me so long to come to a live action Charlize Theron movie, but I love her. I, I just I just love her so much. Um, I wanted to do Atomic Blonde because it's genuinely one of my favourite of her roles. She is so standout brilliant. Uh, but it also feels to me actually quite underappreciated um i had a look uh before i started recording this episode and i was like i wonder how many of the podcasts out there that i'm aware of have featured atomic blonde and i couldn't find any i'll tell a lie i found one i found one podcast that i knew of that had covered atomic blonde and i just felt like i really need to do something about this i'm really glad that i'm talking about atomic blonde because we need to talk about this movie. It is great. Um, anyway, back to the fight scenes, because that's what I'm talking about now. Um, so the scene in Gascoigne's apartment, uh, which is, and I'm going to talk about the music a little bit later, but it's set to the backdrop of George Michael's song Father Figure. And it's just so great. So they utilise tricks like rubber 
refrigerators and also flooring as well um, so that the stunt performers had rubber flooring to land on Um, and that was stitched together with real flooring uh, in post-production as well as the scene focuses primarily on one antagonist and he's the guy who ends up with rubber hose wrapped around his neck it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie purely for Lorraine strangling with the hose as he flips and kicks another dude in the head Uh, I think it's literally one of the standout scenes i love it uh stunt coordinator sam hargreave actually told the stunt person to ensure he didn't land on his head when the hose pulls him over the desk but he does land on his head um and luckily i have to say he was completely fine um the stairway scene though the famous stairway scene of this movie utilizes old school camera trickery like pans wipes body crossings and and basically allows the necessary breaks in filming but it also looks like one single unedited shot um the fight was shot in continuity as well and the levels of damage obviously to charlie's and to the other actors on the set were upped for each shot so gradually lorraine has more injuries and more blood to kind of add to the continuity but also to try to make the transitions between the shots as invisible as possible Charlize felt that it was important to show that Lorraine could get tired, that she wasn't superhuman, but she's obviously also potentially going to get banged up herself. And if you think about it, eight hours of choreography, of any sort of choreography a day, would tire out a professional athlete or a stunt person, let alone an actor who has to embody a character as well as beat up someone slash also get beaten up at the same time. So she had to carry on with this choreography she had to remember every single step and she had to stay in character the whole time uh and this is one of the reasons why it's almost impossible to have a one-shot take a true one-shot take because you would just get so physically and emotionally drained from doing it but the pain that you see on screen um is probably somewhat real uh because like i say charlie's did a lot of her own stunts in this movie and they had to be really careful to not injure her because you couldn't risk her not being able to do the scene and carry on and perform the next day the sequence that we're talking about so the 10 minute stairwell sequence was actually nearly 40 separate shots um so they were discreetly stitched together like i said to appear as one it required a collaboration between david leach uh, and obviously charlie's theron as well as well as cinematographer jonathan seller and editor Elizabeth Ronalds Dottier, who were both on set. They both worked on John Wick, another reference to John Wick. And so they were there during the shoot to make sure each shot could be seamlessly connected with another. Um, The location that they shot this in was a real building in Berlin. The building actually had no lift uh, or elevator, as you Americans would call it. Um, So the lift shown is actually a fake. Uh, And when she goes into the lift... Uh, there's actually an invisible cut as she kind of pans down to check her gun and the camera pans back up again and then the door opens and it's basically the same landing repurposed as a higher floor of the building so once the characters exit that building and they steal a police car uh stunt coordinator sam hargreave is operating a handheld alexa mini camera as they are followed to the car and the car itself actually had a camera through the roof um and what's really impressive about that is that you can see the camera panning between all of these different characters so there were four or five people outside the vehicle they were controlling the action as the camera kind of pans in the car to look at Charlize Theron and then it turns to the back seat and then it turns again to Eddie Marson 
who's actually sitting in the passenger seat next to Charlize Theron. Um, and that was accomplished quite amazingly by having Eddie Marson lying flat in his seat. So when the camera through the roof is looking at Charlize Theron and then it pans to the back, he is lying down. So he is completely invisible. And by the time it kind of pans to him, she is then lying down and the camera can pans back to him and then he is sitting upright. Um, so it's it's quite astonishing how they did it, but it's such a great shot. As far as I can tell, there's no other camera trickery involved. It is literally just a camera through the roof and each actor lying down. Uh, it is truly great. And as I said, the whole movie just looks spectacular. Um, and there is an argument levelled against this movie that it is a little bit style over substance. But the substance part is interesting when you look at some of the changes that they made to the original source material. So Delphine LaSalle is played by Sophia Butella. She is also a dancer. Uh, so the character was a man in the graphic novel by the name of Pierre LaSalle. Um, and the idea to make Lorraine bisexual or to appear bisexual was kind of seen as revolutionary for the spy genre but it also kind of backfired a little bit too so the idea from David Leach was that Lorraine is basically so ruthless at getting what she wants uh, and getting information that she will do whatever or whoever she needs to to get that information he wanted it to be provocative storytelling he wanted to contemporize the story and he felt like this would open up the idea that Lorraine could potentially be a queer character or she could also just be the ultimate spy, trained in the ability to seduce literally anyone. Uh, the problem with this was that although some LGBTQ people felt seen and represented, the fact that, unfortunately, Delphine is quickly killed off highlighted the very real and problematic bury your gaze trope, as well as the sex scene itself just being seen as essentially male titillation um, and although the movie seems to want to use Delphine as a tool for plot progression as she happens to take the incriminating photos that Lorraine can use to ultimately frame Percival as Satchel but more on that in a bit Lorraine is actually also visibly upset when she finds Delphine's body which makes you think did she actually have feelings for Delphine after all or is she just a really good spy because even Delphine doesn't notice that Lorraine's accent slips. And to be fair, I never noticed this the first time I watched it. It's only with subsequent watches that I realised that Charlize Theron's accent changes uh, in certain situations. So she will go from being definitely very British to slip to an American. And it's actually a massive clue to the fact that she is actually American. And to be fair... I mean, we're almost half an hour into this podcast and I've not even really mentioned James McAvoy. <laughs> and I mean, James McAvoy is genuinely one of the most compelling actors. And I mean, I talked about James McAvoy before because I did an episode on X-Men Dark Phoenix. And one of the things, um, that was with Chin Lin from the Bingeables podcast. And one of the things that we actually agreed on that X-Men Dark Phoenix actually does is... At least it's got James McAvoy in it uh, because he is consistently great. And he also has this uncanny ability to literally transform. And I don't just mean obviously because he's an actor, but anyone who's seen Split will know exactly what I mean because he plays every single character in that movie flawlessly. And he is great as Percival. He is a character. He's not exactly loyal to his country as we discover. But as this is a spy movie... 
No one can be trusted from the start. Percival is described as feral and it turns out that he actually loves this underbelly of Berlin. And this is probably a good time to go into the end of this movie and, and explain it in a bit more detail as I understand it. Because Percival sees Lorraine as a threat to this ideal existence. So he is working in Berlin. He mentions repeatedly how much he loves the city, but he also isn't opposed to some back alley dealings with the Soviets. Uh, essentially, he's a character who he cares about nothing other than himself and saving his own skin uh, and basically living his best life. And if that means an allegiance with the Soviets and obviously the treason that that means he's committing, then he'll do that to essentially have a good life. Um, while Percival actually has the list, he can't allow Spyglass, who's admitted to memorising the list, to live. Because if Spyglass gives that information to the British or the Americans, then that means that his information is worthless to the Soviets. So Percival goes out of his way to shoot Spyglass before the Soviets can. It's also why he kills Delphine, because as I said, she has the necessary evidence to prove his treachery. Lorraine obviously uses this evidence from Delphine to frame Percival as the rogue spy Satchel by taking the photos and covert recordings that she's made and editing them together. I mean, let's be honest, this is 1989, podcasts didn't exist, but if they did, then Lorraine Broughton would be an excellent podcaster uh, to prove. So basically she does this to prove, in inverted commas, to MI6 and the CIA that he was actually Satchel all along and that he was setting her up to be Satchel so she would take the fall for him. But, as we discover, Percival knew that Lorraine was Satchel this entire time, and this is why he was trying to get her killed, because Satchel was a mole in MI6, feeding information to the Soviets, but actually Lorraine was a CIA agent working for MI6 to then become a Soviet double agent while avoiding suspicion from the Soviets for being American the whole time. So Lorraine was a triple agent feeding the Soviets incorrect information about MI6 while getting real information from them and relaying it to the CIA. Ultimately, she returns to Langley as a CIA operative with Emmett Kurtzfeld. And that's it. <laughs> that's the ending of Atomic Blonde. So if you didn't understand the ending of Atomic Blonde, hopefully now you do. I'll mention this a bit later as well, but a sequel is being produced, uh, being produced by Netflix. And it's going to be interesting how the character of Lorraine can progress now that she's definitely CIA. Or is she? Because this is a spy movie. So it could very well be that she's not CIA and that they just think that she's working for them. So there's a lot of questions open about the future of Atomic Blonde. Now, I've mentioned him a lot already in this podcast. More times than I would usually do, but there's a lot of links to him. Um, but it's time now for the feature that I like to do called the obligatory Keanu reference. And this is where I like to link the movie that I'm featuring to Keanu Reeves. And um, I mean, like I say, I've mentioned Bill and Ted. I've mentioned John Wick. I've mentioned all the John Wicks. Uh, they mean, there's there's been lots of obligatory Keanu references in this episode. But the main one that I really wanted to mention was that, obviously, Charlize Theron and Keanu Reeves, they worked together way, way back in 1997 on the excellent The Devil's Advocate, which I absolutely love and adore, uh, as well as a movie that I have not seen. And I'll be honest and say I have not seen it, even though clearly Charlize and Keanu are my favourites. Uh, so they were in the 2001 romantic drama Sweet November, 
they are still very good friends to this day. Uh, and obviously when training for Atomic Blonde overlapped with John Wick 2, the pair would spar together. And uh, their sparring became very, very competitive. Uh, and I can just imagine uh, two friends sparring together because this is something that I did with kickboxing friends. You always want to be better than the person you're sparring with. And may I just add that if either Charlize Theron or Keanu Reeves, especially Keanu Reeves, is listening, I would be more than happy to spar with either of you. You will kick my ass, genuinely. I think you would both kick my ass, but I would take it because of the just extreme level of love I have for you both. Obviously, it's a different kind of love that I have for Charlize, that I have for Keanu, but I would spar with either of them any day, definitely. Anyway, so I want to talk a little bit about the music because... Atomic Blonde, I mean, it's known for its visuals and it's known for kind of being this spy espionage. It's known for being Charlize Theron, just kicking ass, taking names and looking gorgeous. But it's also known for an absolutely killer soundtrack. And most of the music in Atomic Blonde is from the early 80s rather than 1989. Uh, Because the songs they chose are the kind of archetypal 80s songs that most people know. Although... I feel like they kind of missed an opportunity to include Blondie. Uh, Blondie had a song called Atomic. Um, and that just seems like a bit of a, a missed opportunity, but never mind. So songs on the official soundtrack include Cat People by David Bowie, 99 Luftballons by Nina, Father Figure, as I mentioned, by George Michael, I Ran by A Flock of Seagulls, and London Calling by The Clash. Songs that featured in the movie, but not on the soundtrack, include Blue Monday 88 by New Order, Uh, The soundtrack actually has a mixed version by Health and also Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie. The trailers, of which there are several, including some very naughty red band trailers, include Sweet Dreams by The Eurythmics, How Does It Feel by New Order and Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode, as well as completely non-80s track by Kanye West. But other than Kanye West, it truly is a great 80s kind of time capsule of a soundtrack and I love it. So Atomic Blonde was released on the 28th of July 2017 and very unsurprisingly it was given an R rating by the MPAA uh, probably because of all of the swears and killing and nakedness. Um, It would open at number four in the US box office. Uh, It was beaten in the box office that week by Dunkirk. Dunkirk retained the number one spot Number two, though, was a new entry that week. And I can't believe that I'm saying this. But Atomic Blonde was beaten by the Emoji Movie. Holy hell. (laughs) I've not seen it. I've heard it's really quite bad. Number three that week was The Excellent Girls Trip, which I highly recommend. I think it's wicked. Um, And this was also a top 10, by the way, which included such behemoths as Spider-Man Homecoming, War for the Planet of the Apes, and Baby Driver, and Wonder Woman. So the aforementioned Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman was also in the charts at the same time. And that kind of just really highlights, I think, what a great period of time it was in July 2017 for cinema. There was so much brilliance going on at that time. Um, An Atomic Blonde was made for a quite a low budget, actually, of $30 million. And it would end up grossing just a little over $100 million worldwide. So it would end up making a tidy profit. 
Um, and critics kind of seem to mostly agree on the style over substance argument, but stress that the style was exceptional enough to kind of forgive the lack of substance. Uh, it currently retains a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. As I mentioned, a sequel is in development with Netflix. This was confirmed in April 2020 with Charlize Theron returning as actor and producer. No news on release dates, though, and that's probably due to the COVID-19 situation. And obviously, the John Wick discussions continue with David Leach commenting on a potential crossover between the two franchises. Individuals involved, I mean, we can assume uh, Chad Stahelski, David Leach, Keanu Reeves and Charlize Theron have apparently all discussed it. And as long as the story works, it still remains a possibility. I mean, I'll be honest, this is going to come as no surprise, but I for one would adore a John Wick, Lorraine Broughton team up or even like a John Wick, Lorraine Broughton versus. Uh, That would be incredibly cool uh, and I would be very excited to see it. Right, so another thing that I like to do every episode is I like to open up the floor to social media and I always ask, you know, I'm featuring this movie next. What do you think of it? Moving over to Twitter, we have quite a few comments, not as many as last week, I'm afraid, with Black Panther. But to be honest, I don't think anything that I'm going to do in the future is going to best Black Panther uh, in literally any regard. Black Panther is a perfect episode. Um, But we have some thoughts over on Twitter. So we have at Black Girls Do Stuff, who said... Charlize Theron is an actor that's great at drama, comedy and action. Atomic Blonde is no different. She brings badass BDE to this role that keeps you glued to the screen the entire time. At BLC Agnew said, A delightfully grungy period spy thriller with a stacked cast, terrific lead performance by Charlize Theron and some legitimately fantastic bare-knuckle action. More than merely Jane Wick, it carves out a unique identity in the genre and I'm still holding out hope for a sequel. At the Peter Briggs, this is the writer of Hellboy, uh, just simply says not a fan. Uh, he didn't elaborate, unfortunately. At AKA Jeanette said, I knew I was in for a good time as soon as she took her stiletto off in that car and kicked some serious ass. At Oral underscore MFC said, Atomic Blonde is a bop, killer 80s soundtrack, a pop art bisexual colour palette to match our heroine and a twisty plot of spycraft and revenge. Charlize is tough but not unstoppable, which lends realism to fights that are choreographed masterfully for her strengths. At Breaking the Fourth said, This film is highly underrated. The twist at the end genuinely shocked me and the stage combat is exceptional. I need more Charlize and James McAvoy. At Movies Work said, Many great moments, though I have to admit I would have liked to see someone like Simon Pegg in the McAvoy role. At Simon underscore Exton said, Very pretty to look at, very well acted and some great action sequences. Sadly, that doesn't make up for a largely absent plot. At Retro Ramble Blog said, Charlize is certainly convincing in the ass-kicking stakes. Love the style, soundtrack and setting, but admit the plot lets it down a little. Would happily watch a sequel. Who needs a female James Bond when you've got Lorraine? At The Cinema Guys said, Love Atomic Blonde so much. Charlize Theron is perfect in this film and the fight scenes, whoa. At Beaver Does said, A fun, fun movie with great soundtrack. James McAvoy looks like he's having so much fun. Charlize Theron establishes herself as a great action actor. And finally, At Pretendium said, Very fun and underrated. I want to see a movie where the atomic blonde fights John Wick. I don't care that she'd be 30 to 40 years older. Maybe there's a wizard involved. Make it happen, Hollywood. There was none on Instagram or Facebook this time round, which 
I mean, I'll be honest, it sometimes happens mostly on Facebook, but sometimes on Instagram as well. Twitter does tend to get the majority of the comments and the majority of the discussion kind of goes on on Twitter. Um, So I'll mention my Twitter at the end of this episode and feel free to obviously talk to me about Atomic Blonde if you like. But really, I mean, I'm still kind of perplexed actually as to why Atomic Blonde seems to have somewhat disappeared in people's minds. The plot is a little hard to follow, but as a spy movie, it remains more appealing to me than most other spy movies. Um, I clearly like my spy movies with neon and quips and beautiful people. Um, Charlize Theron remains one of the most compelling and stunning actors to watch on screen, and she delivers in spades. Like her physical performance, her emotional performance, she is a genuine Hollywood treasure. Uh, I feel like purely on the power of her and James McAvoy, this movie should have been huge. Like, it should be more beloved. And it's kind of sad it's not, but it really is great fun. And I'm really interested to see what Netflix can come up with as a sequel to this movie. And yes, to a crossover with John Wick, give me Atomic Wick. It's, It's what the people want. Thank you for listening to this episode. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Atomic Blonde. If you do like this episode or or any episode, uh, if you could take a moment to rate and review on something like Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome. Uh, And a massive thank you to the five-star reviewers who have recently given me some great reviews. It really genuinely does give me a boost. Like, this is just me sitting in my study with a laptop and a mic and a little amp. Um and an occasionally a second monitor, <laughs> uh, just kind of sitting here and putting my voice out there. So it does give me a boost to kind of hear that people really enjoy what I put out. And it literally takes two minutes of your time and it means genuinely so much to me. And obviously, if you do enjoy what I do, then tell a friend and get them interested in listening to me ramble on in my study with a mic. Um If you do like this episode on Atomic Blonde, I'm going to recommend a couple of my other episodes that you might also like as well. Uh, And similarly, the movies. Um, Some of them are a bit out there, so just kind of bear with me uh, because I've not really done anything in the spy genre before. Like I said, I do like some spy movies. There are definitely some more spy movies on the big list. Uh, But this is really the first kind of espionage thriller, essentially, that I've done. Definitely not going to be the last, let me tell you. Um... But I kind of thought about it and I was like, well, the first episode that I want to recommend is episode 17 and that's The Iron Giant. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to be like, well, how can she link Atomic Blonde to The Iron Giant? And it's really just the Cold War setting. Uh, I mean, Iron Giant is set in a completely different decade, set in the 50s. But the threat of Cold War looms over The Iron Giant as well. Um, It is a an animated movie it is a superhero story essentially but it's one of the most beautifully animated beautifully directed beautifully performed it's it's just one of the most stunning animated movies you will ever see and i i can't recommend it enough so if you like movies set during the cold war uh the iron giant is what you need to be watching episode 29 Kubo and the Two Strings and that's obviously for another great Charlize Theron performance uh again albeit an animated form she plays the character of Monkey it's such a great movie like I still get so upset that people haven't seen Kubo and the Two Strings it's so good it's 
by Leica Studios. They are the same studio that did Coraline. Coraline, by the way, is literally one of my most popular episodes. Uh, people love Coraline. I really wish that people loved Kubo like they love Coraline because it's worth it. Um, episode 34, obviously, uh, the John Wick trilogy because literally I could not mention John Wick anymore than if this was a John Wick episode. It is essentially a John Wick episode about Charlize Theron. Um, but yeah, there's so many links to the John Wick trilogy. And that's that was a really fun episode. As I said, I had guests on for it. Laurel and Derek from The Midnight Myth. And they were just phenomenal. They are some of the most phenomenal podcasters that are podcasting at the moment. Uh, and I highly recommend their podcast, by the way. Um, and again, another kind of a bit out there. Uh, and it's mainly because it's also based on a graphic novel. But V for Vendetta, which is episode 67. So that was a couple of episodes ago. And mainly just because it incorporates some real world situations uh, with fiction. Uh, but it's also based on a graphic novel. And it's interesting. You might like it. Uh, obviously, give me feedback on my episode recommendations. It's really hard to recommend something similar to Atomic Blonde when you haven't done anything really similar to Atomic Blonde other than John Wick. Um, but obviously, let me know. Do you think I missed anything? Do you think I should do more spy movies? Clearly, I should do more spy movies. I'm going to rectify that soon. Uh, so the next episode is not, unfortunately, a spy movie, sadly. Um, but it is another star slash producer combo. And also, coincidentally, a previous co-star of Charlize Theron. So this actress and Charlize Theron starred together in last year's Bombshell. Um, and this lady, she is a similarly beautiful blonde who also seems to have it all. She can act. She's a producer. She also does a lot of her own stunts, just like Charlize. And she's someone I've wanted to feature for a very long time. And I'm genuinely thrilled to feature Margot Robbie on this podcast because I love her as well. I think she's phenomenal. I love her work. I love pretty much everything that I've seen her in. I've loved. But I really wanted to talk about one movie in particular. And that's because I've done a little bit of Marvel. And I also wanted to do a little bit of DC. I specifically wanted to talk about Birds of Prey. And the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. I'll probably just going to be calling it Birds of Prey, to be honest. And how much I love Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey was... The last movie that I saw in cinemas before the COVID-19 pandemic. And I just completely fell in love with it. It has a primary female cast who are all exceptional. It has a female director and a female writer. And genuinely, I think it's splendid. I mean, it's one of my favourite movies of this year. Uh, which, let's be honest, in 2020, it's not saying much. But I enjoyed it a lot. Um, so join me next week for Birds of Prey. And I'll be completely honest. As part of my preparation for watching Birds of Prey, I'm also going to be re-watching Suicide Squad. And, <laughs> and, and that's mainly because, I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of Suicide Squad. Uh, I think it has good moments. Like, I don't hate it at all. I mean, it had an excellent trailer. Really did. Uh, the soundtrack's really good. Overall, though, it's a bit of a mess. I'm only really doing that because I really want to compare Harleys. Because Margot Robbie was standout for me in Suicide Squad despite the very obvious male gaze. Um, but I want to compare the Harleys and I want to use that as part of my discussion for Birds of Prey because the story of Harley Quinn is kind of integral to Birds of Prey. It is an ensemble movie. It's not just about Harley Quinn, but she is so central to that movie. 
that it was like I was like I've got to got to kind of rewatch Suicide Squad to kind of really get the full Harley Quinn experience. So yeah, Birds of Prey next week. I'm really excited to be talking about Birds of Prey. And I'm also kind of excited to be re-watching Suicide Squad because it's been a while and I'm hoping that it might be a bit better on second inspection, but we'll see. So as I said earlier, if you want to follow me on social media, I am at Verbal Diorama. So that is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. If you wish to just listen to this show, it's completely free and it always will be. But if you do want to support the show financially, as I said, you're under no obligation. But I do have a Patreon and that is patreon.com slash verbal diorama. And it starts at $2 a month or £2 a month, depending on where you live. And at the moment, I'm looking for ways to give more to patrons. And so I'm doing something called 20 in 2020. And it's basically, I want to try and get 20 patrons in 2020. To be honest, I don't think I'm going to achieve it um, because I have seven left to go. And I appreciate it's mid-November, Christmas is coming. It's probably not the best time to say, I want to get seven more patrons. But even if I don't achieve it in 2020, as soon as I get 20 patrons, patrons are basically going to get loads more stuff. Um, So if you would like to support the show, uh, please consider signing up. And a massive thank you, as always, to the Atomic patrons of Verbal Diorama. Uh, They are Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff and Luke. Uh, I mean, I'm hoping that they're not spies. Um, (laughs) They've been sent to my Patreon to spy on my perks. Um, That sounds wrong, actually. That sounds a hell of a lot more wrong than I intended. But anyway, uh, patrons, they're great. Uh, I've got a merch store as well. It's teespring.com slash store slash verbal diorama. Obviously, with Christmas coming up, you might want to buy some merch. You might not. It's completely up to you. And obviously, if you want to get in touch, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Or you can fill out a contact form over at verbaldiorama.com. And obviously, I write for film stories. I write for the magazine. And I write for the website. And I do podcast recommendations on the website. And if you are a British independent movie podcaster and I have not featured you and you think to yourself why hasn't she featured us yet please get in touch with me because I have a list I'm working through it chances are you are on it it's just that it's taken me a little while to work through but if if I have not got in touch with you then feel free to get in touch with me and just ask me can you feature me uh, obviously you have to be British you have to be a movie podcast but that's kind of it like even if you're a British co-production with another country that's fine just yeah get in touch with me if you want me to feature you on the film stories website and finally it's a double pleasure to deceive the deceiver bye Movie Chanel.